you're about to hear was aired on Planet Philadelphia, environmental radio show on Germantown Community Radio, 92.9 FM, WGGTLP in Philadelphia, and on gtownradio.com. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to Planet Philadelphia. I'm Kay Wood, the host of Planet Philadelphia. Linda Rosenwein, our assistant producer reporter, is here with me. And today we're on a call with Shannon Osaka. Hi, Shannon. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Thanks so much for having me on. Shannon wrote an article that Linda and I saw, and that's why we got in touch, about inflation and renewables. So that's what we're going to be talking about. But before we get into the actual topic of the show, Shannon, could you tell folks a little bit about yourself, please? Yeah, sure. So I'm a climate and energy reporter for the environmental magazine Grist, uh, which is headquartered in Seattle, but we have people all over the country. I'm now based in Washington, D.C., and I mostly cover federal climate policy, energy transition, and some things around electric vehicles. As I said, we saw this article you wrote, and one of the things you wrote was that Biden's proposals to invest in clean energy in American manufacturing could work to lower inflation in the long term. And so we would like to go into that more if we could. Yeah, absolutely. I became apprised of this idea when inflation started to really take off in the last few months. I mean, the inflation has been crazy. It's up to around 8%, the largest inflationary spike in about 40 years. And what I was hearing from climate and energy experts was that some of the proposals in Biden's Build Back Better Act, which was sort of this you know big legislative package that he put forward that hasn't gone anywhere, was that a, a lot of these experts were saying that, yeah, the policies in this package could actually work in the long term to reduce costs and lower inflationary pressures. And part of the reason for that is that oil, gas, fossil fuels in general are huge drivers of inflation today. There's actually been one analysis that said that rising oil prices are about a third of the excess price increases since the pandemic began. So we can actually blame a lot of our inflationary problems on fossil fuels and our use of them. Would this also be true for things like nuclear power? I know you mentioned solar and wind in your article. I then there's hydropower and geothermal as well as nuclear. That's a really good question. And I think that it would still be true, although for nuclear, probably to a slightly lesser extent than for something like solar, wind, or even hydropower. Solar and wind in particular, I mean, we've just seen the cost of solar and wind just plummet over the past 10, 15 years. Solar and wind just continue to get cheaper and cheaper. And part of the reason for that is that once you have the technology, so once you have the solar panels, once you have the ability to construct utility scale solar plants, they really don't cost that much to maintain. They can be expensive to construct, but once you put them up, you know, you're receiving essentially free energy from the sun. Whereas when there's something like oil or natural gas, it gets harder and harder to extract as you move forward, right? So if first we deplete our reserves that are you know, more available, easier to pull out with not very much money. And then we have to go on to more and more, you know, complex methods of removing fossil fuels. 
So when I talked to experts about this, they said renewables in general are inherently deflationary, where fossil fuels are inherently inflationary, both because of the extractive nature of fossil fuels and because obviously fossil fuels are controlled by what's essentially a cartel, OPEC. And so that allows certain countries to put upward or downward pressure on prices kind of at will. And, you know, as the United States, we're, we're producing fossil fuels, but we're not producing really a ton of oil. We are sort of just beholden to those countries to, we're price takers. We have to meet whatever price they set. It sounds like it's not only a economic, but possibly a security issue. Yeah, I think absolutely. And I mean, we've had a weird history in this country of thinking about energy security. Like what does energy security really mean? Does it mean that we produce all of our energy within this country? Does it mean we just have solid supplies of energy? But we've known for a long time that, you know, if we're in this fossil fuel paradigm, we're not really gonna be energy independent as a country for a very long time. And so I think that a lot of Democrats in Congress are trying to figure out ways to look at the current energy crisis that was going on before the war in Ukraine, but now with the Russian invasion of Ukraine has gotten even more intense and serious. And they're trying to figure out how to reframe this such that we can push through some of our climate legislation as an answer to this problem. Now, another aspect of Biden's proposal was doing all our manufacturing in this country. And how does that fit into the picture of inflation? Yeah, so this is a little bit trickier. And I talked to a few economists about this. And I think that basically what they said is that in the past, it was generally a lot cheaper to do manufacturing abroad. And now because we're having, we're in this situation where we have supply chain bottlenecks, we're having difficulty you know, moving things across the world because of pandemic disruptions. We're actually at a point where it could be cheaper to manufacture certain materials in the US and certain products in the US. Now, it's not gonna be the case for everything, right? For things like clothing, it's probably still gonna be cheaper if we're manufacturing clothing and things like that abroad. But for you know, batteries, parts for electric cars, for a whole bunch of other items that are going to require a little bit of a more skilled labor to put together, then American manufacturing could be useful at lowering costs and thus ultimately at lowering inflation. It would seem to me that even over the long run, just because of the energy that's required to bring things to this country, even if it's renewables, it might end up that manufacturing is still better being done in this country. Yeah. And I mean, if we think about like international shipping, if we think about, you know, whether it's aviation or whether it's maritime shipping, I mean, we're not running planes on renewables. We're not running container ships on renewables. Those are using oil and jet fuel. And those things we do not have really good renewable substitutes for. And at, when it's at a time when fossil fuel prices are so volatile, you don't really want to trust that, like trust the shipping system to bring your goods into the U.S. Shipping is really, I think, an under talked about source of greenhouse gas emissions that has not gotten enough attention. And there hasn't been enough 
international policy focus on cleaning up maritime shipping. Yeah, I, I know that's a problem with regulation for shipping. But I think even if it were renewables, just the stress on a grid for all of that energy, because I think that's a big problem for the future. Now, you mentioned sources that you use. Can you tell us what sources you researched to write this article? Yeah, so I mean, I read a fair amount about inflation, and then I reached out to a lot of economists who work on both climate change and energy issues. Um, I also talked to someone who was involved in the Clinton White House and, you know, with an economic background as well. So I was mostly drawing on that type of expertise, but also looking at recent sources of inflation, looking at what's happened to wind and solar prices over time, and kind of trying to ground truth some of the data that my sources were talking about. Did they mention any, I don't know, side benefits of doing this other than possible lowering inflation? Well, I mean, I think there's just huge benefits for the American consumer. I mean, one thing that I talked about in the article was around electric vehicles. EVs right now, they're more expensive than gas-powered cars to buy up front. But over the lifetime of the car, you make that money back because you don't have to pay for gas. Gas is so expensive. And also electric cars, they have fewer moving parts, so they don't actually require as much maintenance you know, not only is it good sort of for like overall American inflation and concerns around that, but for consumers, particularly maybe low income consumers who are currently bearing the biggest brunt of high gas prices, if we shift in this direction and start making more electric vehicles and start selling them more and start building more chargers, then people are going to be able to commute for less money their electricity bills are going to go down overall as we put more renewables on the grid. So in terms of just sort of the general American, there's a lot of benefits there, not to mention, you know, benefits from less air pollution and all of these other, you know, terrible externalities that we know that we have from fossil fuels. There is something called the social cost of carbon can now be legally considered in all federal agencies. Is that a factor? The social cost of carbon is this cost that the government assigns that allows them to assess projects and, you know, regulations and say, okay, you know, this is okay and this isn't. The social cost of carbon that the Biden administration has set, I believe, is now about $50 per metric ton of carbon. And it could be much higher. I mean, if we really want to account for the long-term consequences of climate change, it should be higher. Um, But even that is, even what it is at $50 is a good way to sort of see the benefits of clean energy and the huge, huge costs of continuing to use fossil fuels. So I think that that definitely plays a role and that the Biden administration is definitely thinking about that cost of carbon as they're planning, you know, legislative moves. I mean, the costs of having these weather disasters and then then recovering from them. Yeah, it's it's crazy. You know, and the IPCC just released their report on mitigation of climate change and basically said, you know, we need to reach peak emissions in three years, if we want to have the best chance at not exceeding 1.5 degrees Celsius. And that is a tall, tall order. 
I mean, that will require moving way, way faster than we have to this point. And, you know, as a climate reporter, I'm hopeful that we will see some clean energy legislation before the midterm elections. There's not that much time left. Congress is going to have to really start acting much more quickly than they have been so far. And at some level, you know, the war in Ukraine, the situation in Europe is extremely serious. But that just gives us more reasons why we need a clean energy package from Congress. The thesis in, in your article was that Biden's proposals could work to lower inflation in the long term. So what are your thoughts about what should be done in the short term? Well, in the short term, I think that Congress needs to confirm Biden's nominations to the Federal Reserve, which, you know, he proposed this one woman to chair the Federal Reserve who was deemed by Republicans to be too climate friendly because she had spoken out quite loudly about the risks that climate change posed to the financial system. And so they did not want her to be confirmed. And so the Federal Reserve is working kind of without a leader and with many positions unfilled because Biden has been unable to make those appointments. So in the short term, we need the Federal Reserve to do what they do, which is to raise interest rates to slow down inflation. But in the long term, Biden is hoping that clean energy and American manufacturing can make it so that we don't have to use such a blunt instrument as raising or lowering interest rates to control things like inflation, such that we have a sort of more low inflation regime overall. As you pointed out, it will take time. I mean, even if the clean energy bill passed tomorrow, it would take, you know, six months to a couple years to see those inflationary pressures start dampening down. Are there other sorts of things we could do, like do something about cryptocurrencies because they take a lot of energy and they also have some other problems that are there's things like decreasing subsidies for ethanol? I don't know. Are there other things that you can think of? I, I followed a little bit of the crypto thing, but I'm not super knowledgeable about it. One thing I would say in terms of taking pressure off gas prices, for example, which are a huge driver of current inflation, is if people drive less. If people drive less and also drive more conservatively, the International Energy Agency released a report about gas prices. And they said, you know, if people walk, bicycle more, drive less on the weekends, for example, maybe don't drive at all on Sundays, drive slower, So drive, you know, 55 miles per hour on the freeway, that will save enormous amounts of gas and help to cut, you know, gas demand and thus cut gas prices. Now, the problem is, do we think that people are actually going to do that, especially in this country? And, you know, I'm a little bit less optimistic about that, but those are options that we have. Maybe we should be funding public transit more. Funding public transit would be huge. You know, I was just in Houston for a conference. I don't want to badmouth Houston, but it is a car centric city and landscape. And it's very hard to get around there unless you have a personal car. So if we keep perpetuating the cycle of these cities that are only made for cars, people have no other options. It takes four times as long if you're trying to take the bus somewhere as if you drive in your own car. To me, these various suggestions 
really have to do with decreasing our energy use and increasing energy efficiency in the short as well as the long term. Uh, the the cryptocurrency thing, you know, as you probably know, you know, the amount of energy is equivalent to a whole country that's used, and it really doesn't yeah. do much for anybody. So it could be easily done away with without changing anybody's lifestyle much. And things like getting rid of hydrofluorocarbons, and we have substitutes. And Speaking of ethanol, I read this other article which said that while we subsidize that, um, we're subsidizing corn, which could be put into wheat production. And then if we were growing wheat, our food would be less expensive, which would be deflationary. And we wouldn't be less dependent on the UK and Russia for wheat and food. Mm, That's a very interesting argument. I had not heard that one. It makes logical sense for sure. And it reminds me of the fact that we're also seeing climate-induced inflationary pressures, right? So in the the Northern Great Plains last year, there was a lot of heat, a lot of drought. It created a grasshopper swarm that destroyed some of the wheat crop. Wheat prices went up. We're seeing drought and heat in Brazil that's destroying other crops. And so that's increasing the prices of commodities. So we have this sort of cycle where as climate change gets worse and worse, it can put pressure on particular commodities that can then lead to price hikes for food, for energy, for all of these things. So that's another economic reason why addressing climate change through clean energy that will then hopefully reduce those extreme weather events could be very useful. Biden has this policy um, that he's introduced of increasing fossil fuels for six months because of, you know, the lag that we've talked about. What do you think about that policy? It's so difficult because, I mean, so as a climate reporter, you know, any increase in fossil fuel production is not good. Any increase in fossil fuel use we know is not good. I mean, we just got this warning from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that we have three years to peak our emissions. And then we have to go back down at just this extremely steep rate if we want to hit our climate goals. You know, from that perspective, to some extent, it's a terrible idea. Now, there's this push and pull because I think that what Democrats are reacting to is that they say, okay, if energy prices are really high, then they're not going to get reelected at the midterms. It's like, how do we balance these two things, which is what is the sort of climate risk of, you know, increasing production of fossil fuels versus what is the climate risk that we have a conservative majority take over the Senate and the House, and then we can't pass any climate policy for another two, four, maybe six years. And I don't know the answer to how to balance those things. I know that extracting the fossil fuels is not going to be good for the climate. But I also understand that there are these sort of political push and pulls that are happening within the Democratic Party, and they're anxious about the midterms. And the 50 seats in the Senate, the slimmest, slimmest possible majority that you can have, I think it's difficult. And I think that the same thing is going on with discussions of Europe and, you know, sending Europe more liquefied natural gas so that they're less dependent on on Russia. And I think that, you know, obviously we don't want Europeans to be suffering with extremely high energy prices due to this conflict, 
but also we know that ultimately they need to get off of natural gas. So there's this real problem between what should we do in the short term and what should we do in the long term? And as one of my sources told me, when does the short term turn into the long term? (laughs) When do we need to say no more natural gas? Now is the time that we need to switch. And it's a difficult question. I would think it'd be additionally difficult because if we're putting in new natural gas infrastructure, people put money in it, they're going to use it. So it's going to be infrastructure that's there, or does it suddenly become stranded assets? Right. And, you know, the IPCC in their report said, even if we just continue using our existing fossil fuel infrastructure until the end of its useful life, that will be too much fossil fuel use to hit our climate goals. It's difficult because the IPCC is also talking about, you know, they're trying to get us to 1.5 degrees Celsius. And we're already at like 1.2 degrees Celsius. So that's a very, very tight window. From that perspective, you can't build any new infrastructure. Linda mentioned earlier about the storms and the devastation. Are people putting together these figures to make a cost analysis? You know, maybe it's worth it to take these petroleum and infrastructure out of production, even if it costs a lot of money, because it may save money by not having whole areas destroyed by huge storms. I mean, I think that, you know, every economist who has done a careful analysis that accounts for climate change and its damages and accounts for the air pollution damages and all of these things will say it's a no brainer clean energy is better, it will save us money in the long term. The question is, how much are decision makers and how much are executives of fossil fuel companies thinking about the long term versus how much are they thinking about the short term and keeping short term profits running for as long as they possibly can? Right now in Pennsylvania, we're going through this whole philosophical argument about whether to join Reggie or not, the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. The money is supposed to be used to help the environment and help ameliorate some of the damage that's happened already. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm wondering if some of that money could be used to help, I don't know, lure the fossil fuel companies into a different business. <laughs> no, I think that it, some of it is supposed to be for transition sorts of issues for workers as well as businesses. I need to look up a bit more information about this, but I have heard that there are movements of, you know, wealthy people where instead of spending a lot of money giving to climate groups, they're just trying to buy up coal companies and coal mines and then just like end production. (laughs) That is the strategy to just buy up these, you know, soon to be stranded assets and then strand them. That's one method and perhaps a very useful and helpful method. I hadn't heard that one. To me, the hope is some of these lowering energy use, because we can do being more energy efficient pretty fast in some areas. And some of these things are things that really both the populace and politicians really could maybe accept. They're really not that difficult. So to me, that would be the way to work in the short term. I even saw someone saying, let's put plants outside of old buildings and that's a cheap way to insulate them. (laughs) There are probably a lot of things like that that just are 
not known to people that could be in aggregate an important solution? You know, when you're talking about buildings and efficiency, that's such a huge one. Because building efficiency is like a win, 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 right? It's you make your building more efficient, you spend less money on energy, you have lower heating and cooling bills, it's good for the climate, it's good for everyone. There's really no downsides. I think part of the problem is, number one, I would say that it's not particularly sexy. A lot of people don't wake up in the morning and say, you know, oh, I really want to hear more about building efficiency. Sometimes I do, but, but most people don't. Um, and, and I think also just that, you know, it's difficult. There's a lot of things you need contractors. If you're going to electrify your building, that takes work. And I mean, there's just all of these different steps that are sort of obscure to the ordinary person, but are very useful. And when I talked to some folks in Europe about the energy crisis over there, even before the war in Ukraine, they were saying the EU focused a lot on trying to diversify its supply of natural gas and trying to figure out new pipelines that they could build, new sources that they could get natural gas from other than Russia, even before this invasion happened. But they were saying that the EU was not really thinking about building efficiency. They were thinking about the supply side, but not the demand side. And the demand side was where they could have made much more progress. Right. That's my you know, point. Yeah. I used to live in the UK and there are buildings there. I mean, it's like single pane windows, the wind blows and it knocks a lamp over on your desk when the window is closed. <laughs> Gosh. And those are simple things, but I think they are administratively difficult to do. It takes a lot of legwork to figure out how to develop a really good program that gives money to building retrofits and things like that. And it's not sexy, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it. We definitely need to do it. Right. What do you think are some of the lessons to be learned from this current energy natural gas crisis? I take a few lessons from it. Number one is that we've known for a long time that fossil fuels are really volatile. And now we have a perfect example of how volatile they are and how it can affect the entire global economy. It can affect consumers all over the world. I don't think that when we switch to clean energy, we're not going to have an end to energy crises and problems, but they will be different and hopefully they will be significantly less. We might have a problem for getting lithium for batteries, for example, but it will change the balance of power and we definitely will not be you know, beholden to a cartel like OPEC. I think the other thing that it illustrates is just that there is this really difficult push and pull between wanting to decarbonize and wanting to decarbonize. I mean, when prices for fossil fuels go up at some level, that's great for decarbonization because it means that people are going to be looking for alternatives. They're going to be looking for electric cars. They're going to be looking for ways to, you know, change their homes. So they're not dependent on gas, but with that comes political discontent. People don't like it when energy prices are higher. France, they had the yellow vest movement when there was an increase in the fuel tax a few years ago. And I think people in Europe are starting to get worried about a similar uprising of people who are really unsatisfied with the high energy prices and the toll that it's taking on individual families. So it just illustrates that there's this, you know, yes, we want to decarbonize. And at some level, we want fossil fuels to be more expensive because they should be more expensive. They are costing, you know, the planet and creating a lot of damage. But at the same time, there are these political pressures and we don't want people to be suffering and not able to pay their bills as we're decarbonizing. 
So those are kind of some of the things that I think about. A while back, I heard about a plan that was a carbon fee and dividend. So the plan was basically carbon producers would have to pay a certain amount of money that would be collected through the government and returned as a dividend to the citizens. And I was wondering if a similar sort of plan might help particularly lower income people deal with the transition to cleaner energy. Yeah, I think that I think that that's true. And it's been interesting because there was a time when that carbon tax and dividend idea was people said, you know, this is the way that we're going to do it. You know, this is the way that we're going to decarbonize. And I think that it's become less popular, mostly because there's a worry that even if it is a tax and dividend, just the response that people will have sort of emotionally, psychologically and politically to a tax will be so strong as to create a lot of opposition. And I mean, Canada, they have a carbon tax and dividend. It's been working. It's also created a lot of partisan animosity where people have been very unhappy with, with Justin Trudeau because it keeps ratcheting up, which is what it should do. You know, you tell people we're going to create this tax. It's going to go up and up and up. And that tells people, okay, we need to start shifting. We need to start moving um, in different directions. I think that something like that could be successful in the U.S., but I think it would have to come with the government doing some really big spending into clean energy, into EVs to kind of create the foundation so that we're not just making fossil fuels more expensive, but that we're also at the same time making clean energy much cheaper. So then we can work on both of those things at the same time, fossil fuels more expensive, clean energy cheaper, then it will be more and more of a no-brainer both for companies and for individual families. Well, one of the things it seems to me that we've learned is that we can't be dependent on any one energy source. We have to really be more diversified. And that includes, I would think, not just everything being electrified, really, mm-hmm. because again, if something happens with the electrical grid, then what? You know. <laughs> so I don't know how we do that. I, I, I would think both the business and the government would have to get together to diversify to make that work. There's certain sectors and areas where electrification just can't do it all. I mean, in heavy industry, like if you're making steel, you need the temperatures to be so high to make steel. We don't have the tools with electricity to create that kind of heat. Same thing with like really heavy duty trucking. It, we may not really be able to do this with batteries. We may need hydrogen or something along those lines. And so I think that there's been some exploration of how to fill these gaps where electricity is not going to do it, but we're not really there yet. I mean, we don't have, for example, we don't have nearly enough sustainable aviation fuel. There's no really good option there. And so I think it's going to take a lot more R&D, probably a lot more government funding to get there. And, and you know, companies and, and scientists and other groups looking at what we can do. And possibly on the individual front, as you mentioned earlier, possibly people not flying to go on vacation somewhere. <laughs> right. Frequent flyers, people who fly, I don't know, five, 10 times a year, make up such a huge amount of overall air traffic. And so it's not even like if an average person wants to go on one or two trips a year, it's like, that's totally fine. I would hope that post pandemic, that the era of business travel 
where you're flying across the country, you know, every other weekend. I hope that that will come to an end. And I mean, I think it's already resurged in some ways, but. Is there something we've missed that you really think people should know? I don't think so. I think that we really covered a lot and I love both of your questions are so great and fascinating. So it's been really fun. Lovely talking to you both. Lovely talking with you. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye-bye. If you want to know more about Planet Philadelphia, go to planetphiladelphia.com. You could also find out more about other G-Town Radio programming by going to gtownradio.com. I hope you will consider making a small monthly donation to help Planet Philadelphia continue presenting interviews on important underreported environmental topics and exploring their complexities and intersections. Thank you so much for your support. 